Welcome to A Little Anarchy Movie Podcast, the show where two cool kids posing as comic book aficionados break down the structures and unstructures of geekdom in films. My name is John. I'm co-host number two. I am Ian. I'm co-host number three. And we have a great show this week. First, we'll tackle our topic of the week, The Incredibles. Then, reader responses in the feed. And finally, our listeners' favorite segment, because it means we're shutting up quite soon, comically irrelevant. Ian, what would you say is your favorite part of The Incredibles movie? Directed Mm. by Brad Bird, released in 2004, featuring the voice actings of Holly Hunter and uh, that other guy and that other girl and uh, Jason Lee and uh, Brad Bird as Edna Mode and uh, all those other voices. And Oh, yeah. I love all those other voices. Those are the best part. I would say that my favorite part is Edna Mode. My God, you've gotten fat. (laughs) No capes. John, who is your favorite character? What's your favorite part? Also, I love the score by Michael Giacchino, but that's a separate thing. Who just did Spider-Man Homecoming? He's great. Uh, my favorite moment is, where's my super suit with Frozone and his wife? My evening is in danger, John. I, I know your evening's in danger, Ian, because we've been trying to record this podcast for an hour. So it's clearly okay. definitely in danger. Uh, so, Ian, let's talk Incredibles. Let's talk Incredibles. Let's talk Incredibles. So, Ian... Probably uh, the thing that I love the most about The Incredibles going through it, uh, it's all about family. Superhero movies are obviously super saturated right now. The whole movie industry is they are flooding, flooding through the gates of hell. I don't know. Depends on how you feel about superhero movies. Uh, Yes. I always really, really like it when superhero movies dig into another genre or dig into something deeper than just um, actually like I need to save the world or some crap like that. And I think The Incredibles is a movie that goes much, much deeper into the family element. Uh, and that's why I love it so much. What are your thoughts? Uh, I love it because it's just like a super satisfying movie. Like all the huge heroics and all the plot elements that come back to like fit back in later in the movie. And also just the beautiful sets on the island. And, oh, God. And yeah. in the cities. They're just beautiful and super well done. And also it's just a lot of fun. Like everything seems really satisfying. Like that wall of magma yeah. that like closes on that's so cool and, and they also like have he's like clearly gonna take the easter island head and gonna run with it through it yeah and then mirage walks back in and he has to put it back down i mean yeah i recently rewatched the incredibles and found myself so much more entertained by this uh classic romp uh as a superhero movie than most superhero movies i have seen today minus spider-man homecoming which i loved but the incredibles feels incredibly <laughs> fresh incredibly different and it's kind of nice that this came out before all the big wave of superhero movies because i think it it, and it's really nice that it still stands the test of time going through that it's not Mm -hmm. like it did something and then people built off of that it did something original that no one had really done like a mix of things that no one had done before family looking at superheroing as a whole all this stuff uh and no one else has tried to do it since except uh, i know they're gonna do a sequel next year so i'm really excited to see how they do that but uh what is it for you about the kind of things that this movie does differently or makes it still relevant to you today yeah i mean what it does what all pixar movies do which is like actually has a theme and characters that grow right like yeah the theme of this for me was less about superheroes than it is about just like growing as a family and actually being humans and like figuring out what your talents are and working with those talents so within the um, context of a fun superheroing world that they set up right at the beginning which makes it so then they're really organically intertwined rather than just like 
they're they're not separate by any means. The theme and the world. Yeah, I totally agree because I think at the heart of this is not a superhero movie, whereas a lot of, like Age of Ultron to me, at the heart of that, that's a superhero movie. That's what they set out to make, and that's great. But how much more can it say when its focus is being a superhero movie? Uh, so it's super fun that we have something that is uh, how I kind of view The Incredibles is it's set in a superhero world. The driving theme is family and the uh, and the path that the characters all follow. And they follow that. The plot actually is mostly like a superhero or is a um, is like a spy caper for like a good chunk of it. So for me, it's like totally. this melding of all these different threads that as a kid, I was just like, hey, this is cool. And then as I look at it, like rewatching it, I was like, what the hell were they doing here? Like, how are they juggling all these things and at the same time, like, synthesizing them so freaking well? Well, and you said it best in that, like, the reason they can do that is that they're not working around other texts. Like, they're just kind of doing their own thing. And I think the theme of family is a really great example of how that comes through. So, like, for me, some of the best moments of this movie was, like, all the interactions between the family. Like, at the dining room table where the kids are fighting and Elastigirl goes, like, kind of around the table and Mr. Incredible picks up the table. and I am intervening! uh, yeah, and then the doorbell rings, and they all like kind of go back to place, or like back in the in the car where they're all kind of where the where um, Elastigirl and Mister Incredible, uh, who have yeah, names yeah. that I, you know, Bob and Helen by their superhero names, but uh, where they're talking about directions, and it's just like a really quick, quick two line thing, yeah. just things like that that make it feel much more authentic and give it a lot more soul than the kind of like Marvel level heroics of like kind of chin up looking towards the sky you know this is really or about DC dynamics sa- or dc as evidence with the first bat fleck picture looking sadly towards the ground uh, i remember a quote from jeff johns um that really applies here the idea of coalescing around a sense of emptiness and for me i sometimes feel in superhero movies if we haven't like if the character and theme are not like developed as much as they need to be like a crazy amount uh, how do they fill in like the stuff in the third act we have we get quips but in this we get the car scene like it's stuff like that that gives this movie that makes this movie last and why everything that happens in it may, feels important and feels meaningful because it all ties back to the theme of family one thing that you and i both came across in our research is the movie is built on that kind of growth of a family and yeah. also of the role the quote-unquote traditional roles of a family so you have elastigirl the mom who's being incredibly flexible and has to go in all these different directions and basically hold the family together you have the little boy who's running around completely full of energy can't be tamed you have the the teenage girl who's kind of like shy and literally just wants to be invisible and becomes invisible at school with with the cute guy at that scene you have a baby who has full of potential who can take all these different forms in the future and you have the dad who feels like he needs to be the strong guy to keep it all together go to his job fill in that role yeah. And the best part is also that they actually do something with it, right? Like, yeah. the characters evolve. Like, at some point, the mom, well, especially when they're on the island, she talks to the kids and she's like, kids, I need y'all to kind of, like, step in here and I need you. And she says, I need you to meet me halfway, which is more yeah. than she's asked of them in their whole lives, right? Like, they all are challenging each other to become a little bit different and more than they were in order to become a stronger unit, yeah. a stronger family, but also a stronger, like, powerful team of superheroes yeah which you know in the end that's all a family is you know and i think the question in watching this that i kept coming back to is like well what has the incredibles done that we haven't seen since or what does it do differently and it's like you know a group of superheroes i'm like oh wait a second there's a difference between a group or a team like the avengers and a family and i just think uh you know it's cool when we see stuff like uh 
Captain America meeting Thor and Iron Man and whatnot. But the dynamics of a family, while may, well, definitely harder to navigate and sell, I think are much more rich and rewarding, at least what I have seen in uh, modern superhero takes. What team movies have we had? We are going to get Justice League. We've had X-Men and we've had... Um, Fantastic Four? Nope. Don't think we ever had an adaptation of the Fantastic Four. It's a bummer. Oh, yeah. They've, actually, you're right. I'm sorry. They've never I'm done sorry. that. Uh, and then obviously yeah. the Avengers. And for me, it is more like the idea of being a team or is... It's not even... I mean, yeah, it's a team, but it's more like a unit. And them coming together is just not a big part of the the theme or the goal of the movie it's more about individual journeys along the way like hulk you know recognizing hey i can't work in this world right now which i loved in age of ultron which makes a lot of sense when you have movies that are uh built up in like individual movies built into one but i i for me it's just the family dynamics are so you just get such unique interactions that we won't forget i know it sounds silly but ian i think the reason that maybe we were drawn to this is because the incredibles has stayed super fresh in a time where it seems like um, not as much lately with things like Wonder Woman, Guardians, and Spider-Man, but in a time where we're looking for some kind of shot to the arm. Authenticity. Yeah. Authenticity in the superhero industrial movie complex, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's because nothing as unique as uh, family dynamics within a superhero story had been explored to this depth yet. You're also hitting on another really great theme of this movie, both in in terms of family, but also in terms of unity and also with that powers right so yeah so they're working together in order to enhance and bolster one another's powers and in doing that they're like saying like we are special right and when you think about the movie who's the villain it's syndrome whose whole argument is like you guys shouldn't be unique you think you're special but you're not the line that sticks with me that i think about all the time especially in other superhero movies is if everyone is super no one will be. No one will be. And isn't exactly. like, first of yeah. all, that means that throughout the movie, they're literally fighting irrelevancy. They're fighting yeah. to be pertinent and also fighting to be special in a way. And if you want to keep that going, super. And that is what a lot of families and a lot of definitely families with lineage and with a lot of defining characteristics um, are doing. And in the end, that's what we're all doing, right? We're trying to fight that kind of part of ourselves that's saying like, now you're just like everyone else. And I really, that really resonates with me, that kind of challenge of, I mean, obviously I'm taking this a little bit into the metaphorical sphere because it, in the end, it's just literally fighting a bad guy. But I mean, man, I just think that's a really slick metaphor. I totally agree. And for me, uh, how they set up the movie makes this all work, this journey of relevancy, because they take a kind of cynical worldview of it and say, okay, and let's say a man with super strength appeared. What are the questions that would be raised by that? Can the individual function as a force in society or individuals to should they not have that much power? The idea of supers functioning. I, first off, I love that they call them supers. Yeah. That's, that's just nice and clever. Supers functioning as a force. Uh, an individual force that are doing something that only we see like organizations do. Um, we don't see individual people. People might make argument that like a president might make sense as a, a comparable analog to that. But he or she is doing that through the system that they have set up. Whereas this is like someone in the moment with a ton of power making a split second decision. And maybe that's the wrong one or the right one. At the beginning, Mr. Incredible catches the L train that's like barreling towards him because Syndra or Bomb Voyage blows up the the bridge great name by the way um and it's this question of should he have done that should he not have saved them should he have if someone's uh jumping off a building should he go and try and save them or is it their right to die it's all these questions that were totally not asked in the golden age of superheroes that set up this journey of okay how are superheroes relevant 
in this world. And that's not really the main thing. They aren't they aren't talking about, well, how do, should superheroes behave in law and stuff like that? But it sets it up for them to have this journey of how is a superhero relevant today? And the answer to that is clearly through the character journey they go on within the family unit. Yeah, you're totally right. And this is a theme that we actually have seen a lot of in the like kind of dark and gritty era of superheroes, especially, I would say, in the Nolan trilogy. Yeah, the battle of the individual is definitely just kind of a setup for the greater themes they explore in the movie. So I'm really glad they didn't try and answer that. But they set it up. They used that as a framing device for how does this plot get started? How do we find our characters at a low mm-hmm. point? And then through their family journey... And being, uh, you know, going beyond their powers, the line that Elastigirl says to Mr. Incredible, you have to be more than Mr. Incredible, um, which is what he finally learns how to do at the end of the film, even as he's putting on the uh, Incredible's domino mask. uh, When the Underminer comes up, uh, you can tell, you know, they've all gone on this journey and they are more than their identities at that point, as seen by them functioning as a family at Dash's race. And, And that's a great point. Like how what does it mean to be more than you are? Right. Or more than you what, yeah. more than what you can do. And that goes back to your point about like the role of like for you said as an example the presidency. And I would say the same thing about superhero, right? Like you're allowed to do more or more outside of a certain purview when others see you as something more than you are. So, yeah. like, exactly what you're saying, when they begin, uh, they are at a low point. And who's saying that they shouldn't have any power? It's the government. Who's saying mm-hmm. that they are irrelevant? And the, the civilians. civilians, right? And as the yeah. movie goes on, they have to earn that again. But the difference is um, they're going on their own journey, but they also need buy-in from others in order to become an actor up- on behalf of others. So I guess actually, yeah. I, I guess I'll amend what I was saying earlier about like kind of the you do you. I think that's, that I guess is still true. But in terms of standing for more, it is fighting for relevance. And in doing that, you need... By embracing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think these are questions like, hey, if I got super speed, all of a sudden, I would probably define myself by the fact that I have super speed and the things I could do with that super speed and who that super speed made me rather than who I am without it or who I am in uh, a family context. So these are questions that we see a lot brought up in, you know, the stereotypical superhero episode where they lose their powers at the beginning and then they get them back by the end, which, you know. Uh, usually I think are pretty poorly done, uh, aka The Flash and uh, Supergirl and other stuff. But um, for me, the the uh, what I think is cooler is when they go on this journey, even though they have their powers. They're, these two sides are in conflict. They have these abilities, but who are they without them? But it's not like you can just find out who they are without them because they aren't taken away. They're still part of them. And it's this conflict between what I can do and who I should be and who I should be knowing what I could do. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, Mr. Fox, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, one of the things in this movie that, as I mentioned when rewatching it, that I was, like, confused but, like, happy with is the spy intrigue element of it all, uh, which, you know, the beginning sets up with the superheroes having to go underground. Uh, you know, we see that one of the supers has died, Gazer Beam. Uh, I love the idea. I don't know. Gazer Beam, I thought, was just the coolest thing ever. I don't know why. As a kid, I was like, there's a guy who can shoot things out of his eyes and his name's Gazer Beam. Whoa. Not realizing that there's, you know, a character called Cyclops who does the exact same thing (laughs) and who he's obviously based off of. And obviously, like, a big part of this second act is, you know, Mr. Incredible on the island and um, Elastigirl and the kids coming and trying to navigate what uh, Syndrome's plan is and, you know, how all these supers have been killed off and uh, going through, you know, as the bread and butter of like pretty much most spy movies or capers like sneaking into a facility and trying not to get caught and doing cool things while doing that and i'm curious 
what you think about that. Because for me as a kid, I just thought that's what a superhero movie was, like not realizing what how this all fit together or what the superhero movie model or and not realizing that this wasn't what superhero movies usually were. So what's your thought on the spy caper aspect of this movie? Because it's a bigger part than I think people remember it totally. as. I, I mean, just to add on to what you're saying, first of all, that there are a couple of other elements that really add to it. And one, that's the score. And two, that's the set yeah. design. And basically the whole look of the movie. It's very classic, like kind of 1950s California E. They but, said it like probably takes face. Um, someone did like the math. They say it probably takes place in 19, late 1960s. That totally, totally makes sense. But either way, yeah. it has this kind of like timeless classic atmosphere to it, right? It's said in like the, like, so, like if we're doing like kind of golden age, silver age of comics. Mm-hmm. Like, it kind of feels like we're there. Absolutely. And a big kind of movie in that era was also the original James Bond. And Ah, that kind of, that kind of like spy that they, that people really looked up to, that hyper masculine guy, you know. And it was all often against like another country, uh, like Russia in a lot of James Bond movies. But in terms of what, how, how I reinterpret my own experience as a kid, now that I kind of can see what it was doing, I think it's actually, it's, well, first of all, I think it's pretty clever. Um, second of all, I think it's smart in like allowing some questions to exist within the movie. And also, it was a really clever way to bring in and weave in new visuals and new ideas. Like, for example, yeah. on that island, like all those pods moving around, like that's just pretty fun. And it gave, oh, yeah. it gave it a sense of secrecy and just like a new context that really lent some more depth and challenge to the characters that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah, I totally agree, dude. And I think also, for me, uh, kind of in a similar way to yours, I thought it was really cool how, for me, it felt like he's like, you know, a lot of this, like we said, a lot of this movie is like self-discovery and coming to terms with yourself and trying to find yourself. And for me, it was really cool to have that juxtapose this personal journey of searching for something uh, and searching for yourself juxtaposed with an actual physical journey of trying to uncover the secrets of the plot. And I thought that was a great way to, like, in just a structural way, great way to introduce the villain, great way for them to challenge things about themselves. You know, I think we were, ta- we were talking about relevancy a lot, seeing all the supers killed off. That adds another thread to that of, you know, we're the last ones. And I think also the thing that I think is really fun is that it forced two characters who don't have like the main act, you know, the main forces on the island from the protagonist perspective are Mrs. Incredible and Mr. Incredible. For me, it was really fun from just like a story standpoint to see these two characters uh, have to be all super stealthy, even though they don't have super stealthy powers. And just like mechanically, in, in terms of like story moments and scenes, that's super cool. Like seeing Mrs. Incredible just like, you know, uh, flatten against a wall and stuff, or Mr. Incredible having to jump from palm trees and whatnot. And that, I think, adds to the freshness of this whole thing, that it wasn't just like uh, the, the kind of intrigue of this whole thing is really something we don't see in second acts of my, of many movies. There's discovery and there's trying to find things so we set them up for a clash in the third act. But I just loved how everything functioned through the spy caper lens. And it just allowed for a lot of fun toys, right? Like when yeah. like Elastigirl like being kind of the boat and Dash being like the rudders oh, of the boat. Oh, yeah. Just like things like that where you're just like, wow, that's kind of fun. Uh, the motor. Or, 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 the or motor. Syndrome's little like eye that he takes out from his, <laughs> his cuff and drops and it becomes a yeah, bomb. Yeah, why was it an eye? I mean, I maybe, uh, I don't. question. Because I thought it'd be like, wouldn't it, shouldn't it be an S? I mean, maybe it's from mm. a reference. I think it's a reference. It looks to like the Incredible symbol. Yeah, true. I think obviously, and I think it's uh, <laughs> obviously. Obviously, it's I think an it was. I. I think it was. My thought it was. It was derived from his Incredible suit. Um, Fair, and also just throwing it out there, the I looks a lot like the Illuminati symbol. Oh, 
Isn't the Illuminati symbol? I'm just saying. Like a triangle? I'm just okay. saying. Uh, yeah, I think I think your point's about like toys and how it set itself up makes a lot of sense. Uh, one of the criticisms that in uh, Terry Schwartz's review on IGN of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was in Ego's Planet. It feels like really barren and there's not like a lot of people there. And that's kind of a bummer as opposed to like the teeming metropolises we saw in the first one and all the fun interactions. And uh, clearly there's a story reason for that because Ego's a living planet. But for me, that brought up the idea of just because you create something in this world like, oh, yeah, they go to Ego's planet or oh, they go do this big plot thing. It doesn't mean it's always fun to watch. Like you want to have things that are like totally. enjoyable for the audience to be there, whether that makes like sense in um even if it like sounds like a thing like yeah they would go to this or whatever oh they would go do this i think it just comes down to what is like you are in the audience you're in the moment and you are just watching things unfold what is going to be the most fun or most enjoyable thing for you uh that kind of story juggling that can be kind of almost which you don't necessarily have to look at in terms of theme you just look at in terms of like what is going to be on the screen right now and what is fun to look at? I really like seeing Mrs. Incredible flatten against a wall or Mr. Incredible jumping from palm trees or Dash and Violet like being in um, like the exhaust area, the exhaust like kind of cave thing when the rocket goes off. For me, the idea of like being on this island and the spy intrigue about it, let them just like throw so many curveballs in, ter- in just terms of plot elements like, oh, it was this and this and this and have uh, funnier and uh, wackier things happen in a way that made sense in the plot and just kept you just like on a visceral like surface level entertained i like seeing these fight scenes i like seeing this and this and this and this we're talking about our favorite scenes those we get lots of options for those in these moments whereas in guardians of the galaxy it's just like oh when they're on ego's planet for like all the second act yeah that's fine and there's some cool and they explored theme and character and whatnot but was that fun to watch that's just something that i've been getting in arguments with people about about a lot and i think it's important to address so uh, as we wrap up here, Ian, uh, the thing that comes back to me that we hit on earlier is the idea of authenticity in superhero movies and how we have been feeling, unless except for me recently, kind of devoid of that authentic feeling in our superhero movies with how many people are, how many are being churned out. For me, some movies that honestly didn't feel authentic for me, or don't seem authentic, uh, Age of Ultron, I like the movie as like on a surface level, but... Yeah, it feels like it's a it's a setup movie. Amazing Spider-Man, uh, X-Men Apocalypse, Thor the Dark World, like uh, Iron Man 2. A lot of these are sequels. And for me, all of those feel like they are f- the the goal of that movie is to be a superhero movie rather than to uh, be a movie about a character. It's more about a character's exploits. And this is, you know, something that is really intrinsic. I, the problem that for me separates a lot of good superhero movies from average ones uh, Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 2, all that stuff. And I'm curious, what, you know, are we going to get this back? For me, I think Spider-Man, Homecoming, and Wonder Woman are very authentic movies, but they're all still products of a studio system that is churning these things out because they're money makers. And how do we avoid getting, you know, processed goods, our superhero movies as processed goods, rather than character journeys? I think you're exactly right. Like, a lot of the the better films, the, feel, the films that feel more authentic, are the ones that the studios or the businesses allow to have a more clear and decisive director or leader. So that's what happened with The Incredibles, mm-hmm. that Brad Bird was brought in to like kind of interject in what 
Pixar thought was uh, them kind of getting in a pace. And they were like, no, we need someone new. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in ba- Brad Bird. And they just kind of let him go. He's the first like outside director yes. for them. And he had just done The Iron Giant. And that is also what we see in movies like Logan. That's what we see in movies like Wonder Woman, where it seems like Warner Brothers, at least, was realizing that in order to go for quality, they needed to let go a little bit of the overarching hands in every pie, right? And yeah, I mean, obviously, with Wonder Woman, that's a, a sample size of one. So who knows if that'll keep up. But um, yeah. with Marvel, they are notoriously heavy handed on the studio side of keeping things mm-hmm. going and keeping the stories consistent. And so I think that that's a big question mark of how they how they allow authenticity. There are moments of authenticity and those come through a, a lot of jokes. I mean, and this is true of every movie. These are jokes that have been tested in yeah, focus groups and just like market tested and all these things. And it's like, fair enough. But at some point, it needs to come from the heart. This is a, something we talk about a lot. The movies that come to mind to combat this are, you know, the Deadpools of the world, the Logans of the world, the first Guardians of the Galaxy. I would say not the second, but the first. Yeah. Um, movies like that, that they're just kind of like, I don't know what to do right now. Let's just give it to that one guy. He seems to have a good idea. And it is always or usually a guy. guy. That's kind of where I'm at is in a way I'm a little bit more optimistic that the studio system seems to be trusting a little bit more in directive directors, but um, who knows? Yeah. And I think with, uh, and we can talk about this for hours and we kind of did in our first ever episode on expanded universes, you know, the directors, everyone has had their eyes on the prize of the cinematic universe. They want their Avengers. They've all wanted that for a long time. They feel like the best way to do that is with creating cinematic universes, the amazing Spider-Man two. That's like, the pinnacle of, hey, we're going to sacrifice the film f- to set up other things. Just crap like that that I do not care for. It seems like a lot of these are sequels because they make like a good character-focused film in the first one, not counting The Amazing Spider-Man. And they try and build off of it and look to bigger, quote-unquote, bigger things in the sequel. Like, you know, setting up an expanded universe, Man of Steel BVS, you know, uh, stuff like that. And what I'm wondering, Ian... With The Incredibles 2 coming out next mm. year, do they, does it fall into that trap? My guess is no, because they're not trying to set up something. And Pixar is really great about it. But it's, you know, how do we keep yeah. the authenticity in the second one in is in a superhero movie sequel? Is the question. I mean, honestly, there's the only answer is, you know, time will tell. Am I optimistic? Yeah. Not really. I think Pixar has been kind of on the downhill slope for a little bit here. Um, and I'm going to point at Cars cars 2 cars 3 the good dinosaur yeah that's what i was gonna say and but either way you know will it be good i hope so i'm counting on it i hope i hope that it really does something great i think a a larger question that this brings up though is how how do you institutionalize creativity which is something that pixar was exceptional at especially at its beginning which steve jobs had a huge hand in and uh, believed that things like the physical building that that facilitates creativity things like that that mm-hmm. um now that it's under disney i mean there are literally books on this so i'm not going to bother going into it but i think so far my answer is yes but who knows yeah so uh let us know what you think in regards to the incredibles to your hopes your fears uh, i trust in brad bird i do not necessarily trust in pixar currently uh that's it for us on the incredibles thank you so much for listening we're going to jump into the feed All right, so in the feed on our SoundCloud page, we have a couple comments we're going to answer from our last episode, which was entitled America, or as I call it, Patriotism. It came out on July 4th. I'm just saying, it's pretty clever. Um, Mr. Bro-Chan says, Something that I noticed from your three archetypes, Superman, Iron Man, and Miss Marvel, is that only Iron Man has any agency in choosing whether or not they get superpowers. The other two are either born with them, Superman, or have these powers thrust upon them, Miss Marvel. So... 
Are comic books effectively saying that only rich white dudes can choose to be heroes while the rest of us just get to hope they get the opportunity? What are your thoughts, John? I think that is exactly what the comic book, uh, people creating comic books see as someone who can create a choice about their destiny in like a really substantial, powerful way. I think the idea of the idea of someone being powerful in terms of wealth and status enough to choose the ability to have powers to create a, a difference. They probably, I don't know if they, inst- they do this consciously, but instinctually, they probably think of a white man. That makes sense, is you know, which is a real freaking bummer. So I don't necessarily think they're making like a statement like only white men can do this. But I think to them, having a character that chooses their powers, which requires, like you said, a lot of agency to them, what their mind goes to is it has to be a straight cishet white man because that's what we see as power. That's what we see as someone who has power and agency in our world. Uh, that's a real bummer. But that's how they see people who have agency. And I think it would be really great if we saw characters that moved past that. And I think um, the, the one that springs to my mind is uh, Black Panther. And it is no, it does not surprise me that uh, as opposed to our archetypes, he is decidedly not American. And he does have the power to create change uh, by his choice. Um, you know, he obviously inherits his power. He inherits his title. But to me, uh, that's that's the one that makes sense to me as kind of the answer to this. He is a person of color who takes action, who decides how much of a you know how much of a hero or a force for change he wants to be, and it's really great seeing that. And it is in no way surprising that he is not an American. Boom. And a, another comment from Meredith Miller, also on our patriotism episode. I felt like a lot of the arguments between Captain America and Iron Man in the Avengers movie were about the old and the new representation of America conflicting with one another. Captain America is the World War II soldier who can't imagine why Tony would be successful when he only seems to care for himself. Tony is annoyed by the moral elitism that Steve has, especially when that moral elitism doesn't always apply to a complicated situation. Captain America says, the only thing you really fight for is yourself. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you. Iron Man replies, I think I'd rather just cut the wire, to which Cap replies, always a way out. Steve is the guy who repeatedly sacrifices himself for his country and can't stand the selfish, greedy way Tony will profit off of war and put himself first. Tony grew up in an America where being selfish was the best way to succeed and where morality is far more complicated. Ian, your reaction to this comment from Meredith. Yeah. Meredith, uh, I think you're on point. You're articulating an awesome point about the different interpretations of America throughout time and that's exactly yeah it's what civil war is all about right and one thing that's concerning to me is that the result of exactly what you're saying in civil war is to fight and not instead to kind of figure it out um and if i if we are kind of like i'm in how you're phrasing it i'm kind of seeing echoes of a lot of public discourse in america today right where it's like you're elitist no you're elitist like you're annoying like all these things which is all legitimate and i'm not saying it's not legitimate i'm just saying that the argument of civil war is kind of that they fight at the end and uh i would prefer some talking but that's not a good superhero movie so there it is i think it's also worth noting the uh, connection between meredith and uh, brochan's question where tony says you know uh, i'd rather just cut the wire he can do that because he is a straight white cisgender male who has the power to do that where not everyone can whereas i think that may be where steve is saying so Cool. So that's that. Ian, let's move on to our last section, comically irrelevant. Ian, what is making you irrelevant this week? Where do I start? Well, I will just say for the general listener, I think on behalf of both of us, there is a good recommendation 
on the NPR website uh, posted on July 12th. There's a great post called Let's Get Graphic, 100 Favorite Comics and Graphic Novels. And it is a roundup of 100 meaningful and impactful graphic novels, comics, single issues, everything under the sun. They solicited recommendations from the public and they made it all into this one beautiful guide. So if you're interested in comics, I would say check that out. My personal recommendation is there is a mentalist in England, Darren Brown. He's a wonderful human who does incredible tricks. Uh, I had the true honor of seeing him in New York City a couple weeks ago, and I would recommend an episode of a podcast on which he's a guest. The podcast is called A Phone Call from Paul, and it Paul works for the New York City uh, libraries, and it's just like the weirdest conversation, but it's a really great one that goes into magic and illusion and also just truth and how we create our own worlds. It's a great conversation. Check it out. Uh, Darren Brown on A Phone Call with Paul. John, what is making you irrelevant this week? Uh, what's making me irrelevant this week is potentially one of my favorite superhero movies of all time. Honestly, Spider-Man Homecoming. Boom. I love it. It doesn't juggle philosophy or you know moral themes in the way the Dark Knight does, and it doesn't set out to. It sets out to give you like an incredible ride. For me, it is, if not one of the greatest superhero movies I've ever seen, one of the most entertaining. I just was constantly bombarded with like heights and i was i remember sitting next to my friend in the theater like looking at him when certain things would happen just freaking out and i have not done that in a long time i didn't do that for wonder woman even though i loved it didn't do that for guardians 2 uh did that for logan a little bit you know it's just this it is a thrill ride and i hadn't had that in a long time and man was it a shot to the arm that uh gives me hope that we will see more uh, authentic superhero movies like that like the incredibles in the future and I think that is our show. If you want to reach us on Twitter, I'm at John Lampus. I'm at Ian Fox. You can email us at alapodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at alapodcast. We are a very proud member of the Batman Podcast Network. Check out the whole Bat family at batmanpodcastnetwork.com. Our show was produced this week by Ian Fox and John Lampus. Mixed this week by John Lampus and Ian Fox. Directed by Ian Lampus and John Fox. Written by Fox, John, and Lampus. Ian, our online support comes from Ian Fox and John Lampus. Our research assistants are Ian John and Fox Lampus. Catering by Meredith Loring, Ryan Page, and Ken. And our logo was designed by Kyle Dibdahl. Find his work at behance.net slash D-Y-B-D-A-L-K. Plus, our theme music is brought to you by our friend, Patrick Monahan. Lastly, we are trying to come up with a name for our fantastic logo, The Little Ghost Guy. Uh, we're getting a little redesign. Not the ghost is going to look the same, but we're going to make it a little clearer. This is a movie podcast. Let us know what you think of that. Kyle Dibdahl is doing the art for it. And let us know what you think would be a good name for our little ghosty buddy. I am going to vote for Reginald. Seems like the stash would fit it, don't you think? Mm, yes. Mm, yes, yes. As always, subscribe to A Little Anarchy Movie Podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, where we welcome you to rate us well, rate us often, and make sure to tell your friends if you have them. See you next time on A Little, A Little Anarchy. Anarchy.